Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. And this is the show where you'll get all the latest mental health news, anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and the causes for it. All that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental illness and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And this week's show is the September 17, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today as we head into fall. Hope that you've been doing well lately. And I think there are a lot of very big stories this past week, but since I've got to start somewhere, I decided to start with yet another anti-obesity drug being approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, obesity certainly isn't necessarily thought of as a mental health problem, but being overweight has many different aspects to it. It is not just a question of metabolic issues or genetic issues. Uh, there are absolutely behavioral issues, cognitive issues, psychological issues, uh, people who use food for comfort, uh, people who cope with stress by eating, people who have very limited self-control over their eating, or even people who are addicted to eating. Uh, so there's definitely a strong mental health connection to the obesity epidemic that we have in this country. But the other reason that I'm talking about this new obesity drug is that it's actually not a new medication. What's new about it is it's a combination of two old medications. Now, I've actually been talking about this product for years, it seems like, because the company who came up with this combination tried to get it on the market quite some time ago, but they were turned down by the FDA, seems like more than once, because of safety concerns, especially cardiovascular safety concerns. But finally, as of last Wednesday, this drug is approved. So we'll go back and take another look at it. But the fight against obesity in America goes on and continues to ramp up. Experts have been busily attacking the problem from all sides with guidelines on nutrition and exercise, psychological insights, surgical advances, and a small but growing array of medications. Now, this new medication is one more option in the arsenal of anti-obesity drugs. It's called Contrave, and again, it received approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, last Wednesday after a long review process. <clears throat> now, there's a, actually another drug, liraglutide, which is already approved to treat diabetes, and uh, that could also be well on its way to FDA approval. 
for obesity. But for now, we'll just concentrate on Contrave. Its approval has generally been met with excitement from physicians who treat obese patients, but it remains to be seen how well it does in the marketplace. As the sales of few other FDA-approved anti-obesity drugs have been lackluster at best, something experts attribute to a variety of factors, including stigma, which can make patients reluctant to seek medical treatment, just as it can lead some doctors to blame patients for their condition, if you can believe that, despite the fact that the American Medical Association began officially recognizing obesity as a disease in 2013. Hard to believe it took that long, didn't it? But even though the AMA recognizes something as a disease, it doesn't mean we all of a sudden have doctors trained in it. The country's current view of obesity and its need for treatment is like that of depression back in the 1980s. It will take some time to change attitudes. Contrave is approved by the FDA for chronic weight management in addition to a reduced calorie diet and physical activity. Note that they're very specific that it's supposed to be used in conjunction with a program of diet and exercise. And it is meant for use in obese adults with a body mass index or BMI of 30 or greater as well as adults with a BMI of 27 or greater who have at least one weight-related condition, such as high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. It's in a different class, Contrave is, from the handful of other available anti-obesity drugs, which include five other options, such as Casemia and Belvic, because it works in a different part of the brain. In addition to affecting the hypothalamus as the others do, and the hypothalamus is a small gland uh, near the middle or the base of the brain, it helps regulate many, many bodily functions, including appetite. Uh, it also works in something called the mesolimbic pathway, also known as the reward pathway. That's important because a lot of people eat out of a sense of rewarding themselves, and the drug helps to turn down that reward system. So therefore, this medication gives us a totally new mechanism of treatment. <clears throat> the Obesity Society, a professional organization dedicated to research and education, agreed, releasing a statement that called the approval an important step that adds to the important tools in the clinician's toolbox for treating obesity. Contrave targets the addictive-like nature of eating, but some patients have that and others don't. Obesity is a multifactorial disease that affects all people in different ways, so it's important to have many pathways that can be targeted. It would also be effective in combating one of the biggest struggles of those fighting obesity, which is trying not to regain the weight once it's lost, and can often provide a good option over surgery. 
But not everybody has accepted that obesity is a chronic disease and that it requires chronic disease management. And that has led to a medication hurdle even bigger than that of stigma, cost. Anti-obesity medications can cost up to $200 a month and are usually are not covered by insurers. And that combined with the relatively low efficacy of the drugs, boosting weight loss in most cases by just 5 to 10%, can make opting for drug treatment simply not worth it for many. The fact that this drug is specifically approved for chronic weight management means that it can be used long term and therefore insurers I would think uh, are at least grudgingly going to have to pay for it in the long term not just short term but that remains to be seen. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services has an exclusion for these types of drugs and that's the biggest thing that needs to change. In other words they won't pay for them. And the reason that needs to change in a big way is because private insurance companies tend to follow closely what Centers for Medicaid and Medicare does, although some are moving toward the coverage, and that's certainly uh, a good sign. Now, the Affordable Care Act also does not cover anti-obesity medications. There's still a third strike against these drugs which is the list of the serious possible side effects, including seizures and suicidal thoughts. Now, the risk of the suicidal thoughts noted by the FDA is because the drug contains bupropion, an antidepressant, and as we know, the FDA made all antidepressants carry a warning of, ironically, increasing suicidal thoughts. So this is going to signal physicians to use particular cautions when prescribing it. The other ingredient in Contrave is naltrexone, which has been used to treat drug and alcohol dependence. Other listed possible side effects include raised blood pressure and increased heart rate, as well as less significant issues like nausea, headache, and dry mouth. Now, bupropion, again, is the antidepressant uh, the brand name for that antidepressant is known as Welbutrin. And naltrexone never really got well known under any of its brand names, uh, be that way back when as Trexam, when it was used to treat, uh, pre to prevent opiate abuse, uh, opiates meaning narcotic painkillers. Uh, and then later on in its life cycle when it was approved to reduce cravings for alcohol in alcoholics, it was known then as Revia. But really, when you look at the distinct profiles of the side effects of these two drugs, it's easy to account for the side effects. Uh, there is a small risk of increased heart rate and blood pressure with Welbutrin, and that's why Contrave carries uh, that risk of side effects, and likewise, Naltrexone is quite notorious to, uh, for causing nausea, so that's where Contrave's uh, nausea side effect comes from. Now, Cassinia, one of the other two recently approved weight loss drugs, is a combination of Phentermine, 
an amphetamine-like drug that was one of the ingredients of the infamous fenfen that got pulled from the market in the 90s because of damage to heart valves. And the other ingredient in casemia is Topamax, an anticonvulsant that has decreased appetite and weight loss as a side effect. And casemia's risks include depression and confusion. Belvic is the brand name for a drug called Lurcaserin, and it has side effects including hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, hallucinations, depression, uh, prolonged painful erections, a la the uh, ED drugs, and slow heartbeat. Uh, so despite the fact that there's a need for these treatments, there is the potential for side effects. We'll finish up our thoughts on the new weight loss drug situation and have more mental health news when we come back from this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Are you tired of taking medication to control your allergy symptoms? Do you suffer from uncontrollable asthma or eczema? Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe and effective alternative. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is committed to bringing the newest medical advances to their patients. With sublingual immunotherapy, you can now train your immune system to stop responding to environmental and food allergies. No more shots, no more trips to the doctor, and freedom from taking daily allergy medication. The drops are simply placed under the tongue three times a day. Both children and adults Adults can be treated. It is safe and cost-effective. Call Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center today at 404-591-9100 for more information or to make an appointment. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Mention that you heard about sublingual immunotherapy on Radio Sandy Springs and get free allergy testing. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696 This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, giving you all the latest updates on mental health-related news. We're talking about the new anti-obesity drug that just got approved by the FDA last week. Now, when it comes to these medications, we're up against a long history of risky obesity drugs. Fenfen definitely set us back. There was the 1999 class action lawsuit against makers of that weight loss drug, which had been dubbed a miracle pill that, as we said before, wound up being linked to deadly heart valve damage. Uh, There was also Meridia or otherwise known as Cybutramine that was withdrawn due to concerns about high blood pressure There is a very high level of scrutiny now because of concerns over heart safety. Hopefully the increased oversight will be worth it, bringing more and more safe treatment options to patients facing very worrisome statistics. 
Globally, around 3.4 million people die every year as a result of obesity. Having a new medication available will give people one more piece of hope. Now, if we take a look at the complement of these three new weight loss drugs that we now have on the market, uh, and again, I was talking about them several years ago and uh, reviewed them each in turn as they were approved, but Belvic or Locasrin, uh, you know, it, it's just one ingredient. Um, it's a new, the only one of the three that's a new drug. That's just one ingredient. I really don't see that sales of it have taken off at all. Uh, the effects are uh, quite modest. Then you have Casemia. That one seems to be used a little bit more, and that may be because it contains fentermine, which, again, people have some experience with in the past and know is effective. Uh, but again, you have an amphetamine-like drug which suppresses appetite combined with Topamax, an anticonvulsant that is also known to have decreased appetite and weight loss as a side effect. And then finally, this new one, Contrave, uh, a combination of naltrexone, which is known to decrease craving in addictive behavior, especially with alcohol, uh, sometimes other drugs. So for people for whom obesity results from excessive food cravings or addictive type behavior when it comes to eating, Contrave might especially be a good fit. But why Welbutrin? Why put Welbutrin in this weight loss drug? Well, it turns out that Welbutrin was studied in the past just by itself, not with other ingredients, as a potential weight loss drug. There's a large nutritional center at Duke University, and a study was done where a large number of people who were overweight or obese but not at all depressed took Welbutrin or a placebo to see who would lose more weight. And again, these were non-depressed obese people so that the effects of the Welbutrin had nothing to do with its antidepressant property. And what they did was all the patients, or rather study subjects, were given the same exact regimen of diet and exercise. A third of them were given Welbutrin up to 300 milligrams a day. A third were given Welbutrin up to the equivalent of 450 milligrams a day. And the last third were given just an inert dummy pill, a placebo instead of any Welbutrin at all. Now, all three groups lost weight, because keep in mind, they all had the same exercise and diet regimen. But what happened was those who lost uh, the most weight were the ones on the highest dose of Welbutrin. There was not a big difference between those who got the inert placebo in terms of how much weight they lost and those who got 300 milligrams a day of Welbutrin. But... Uh, the ones on the highest dose of well between 450 milligrams a day uh, plus diet and exercise lost significantly more weight than either those who took 300 milligrams or those who got the placebo. So it's been known for quite some time. That study was done back in the 90s 
Uh, it's been known quite some time that Welbutrin can aid weight loss, and even though it was never officially submitted to the FDA for this purpose in the past, uh, everyone knew about these studies and these results, and therefore it's been used uh, so-called off-label, meaning without it being officially approved by the FDA ever since then to try to get people uh, to lose some weight, or at the very least, it's a good choice for depressed patients who tend to have excessive uh, simple carbohydrate cravings or tend to eat for comfort or stress eat. Uh, so it really makes sense for that to be contained in a weight loss drug. Um, I look forward to seeing how Contrave does once it gets on the market. Uh, I will tell you that I tried prescribing the two separate ingredients because they're two separate drugs for a couple of patients and um, the results were mixed uh, but I have to say I think it was probably more of an issue of uh, the patient needing to do a lot to get the desired results not just taking the medications but also uh, being very careful about diet and having regular exercise. Next up on psychiatry today well, uh, regular listeners to the show will know that I frequently rail against the use of sedatives and sleeping pills because of their addictive nature and the various serious the very serious side effects they they cause. Well, here is another study that shows that these drugs are extremely dangerous, and so I urge any of you out there who are on benzodiazepine sedatives that's things like Xanax and Ativan and Valium and Clonopin, get yourself tapered off of them as soon as possible because chronic use of these common sedatives is now linked to the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Now, if it wasn't enough that these drugs have been linked in the past to memory problems and problems with attention, concentration, and memory, perhaps... Linking them to the risk of Alzheimer's disease will convince people that they need to get off of them. And what about all of the elderly people who are prescribed these drugs? For goodness sake, they absolutely need to get off of them. Well, let's take a closer look at the latest information. Long-term use of a drug commonly prescribed for anxiety and sleeplessness is linked to a greater risk of Alzheimer's disease. That, according to a study from last Wednesday, whether chronic use of benzodiazepines actually causes the brain disease is unknown, but according to the study authors, the link is so glaring that the question should be probed. Now, let me just review with you what benzodiazepines are. That is a term for the broad group of drugs that includes all the common sedatives. There's Xanax or the generic name Alprazolam. There's Ativan or Lorazepam. There's Clonopin or Clonazepam. There's Valium or Diazepam. There's Librium, which is chlorodiazepoxide. There's Transine. Uh, there is, which, oh, sorry, Transine is Chlorazepate. Uh, there's Cirax, which is oxazepam. 
Uh, there's also some sleeping pills. Dalmain is florazepam. Restoril is timazepam. And there are perhaps some others, but basically any sedative and or sleeping pill fits in this category. Dementia affects about 36 million people worldwide, a tally that is expected to double every 20 years as life expectancy lengthens and the baby boom demographic bulge reaches late age. Researchers in France and Canada, using a health insurance database in Quebec, identified almost 1,800 people with Alzheimer's whose health had been monitored for at least six years before the disease was diagnosed. They compared each individual against three times as many healthy counterparts matched for age and gender to see if anything unusual emerged. They found that patients who had extensively used benzodiazepines for at least three months in the past were up to 51% more likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the risk increased the longer the patient had used the drug. Now, the investigators admitted the picture was foggy. Benzodiazepines are used to treat sleeplessness and anxiety, symptoms that are also common among people just before an Alzheimer's diagnosis. In other words, rather than causing Alzheimer's, the drugs were being used to ease its early symptoms, which could explain the statistical association, they said. They are quoted as saying, our findings are of major importance for public health, and of course they warrant further investigation. A risk increase by 43 to 51% in users of these drugs would generate a huge number of excess cases of Alzheimer's disease, even in countries where the prevalence of use of these drugs is not high. Now, this paper was published in the British Medical Journal. And again, even though there are some doubts about the cause and effect uh, and more research needs to be done, uh, again, uh, the, the weight of all the evidence continues to be damning. And, you know, it's well known that the drugs cause confusion, memory problems. They increase falls in those 65 years of age and older. And again, I think this just adds more weight uh, to the evidence against their use and people on them of any age, but especially the elderly, should be taken off of these drugs. Well, a major news story that took place since I spoke with you last week was all the uh, personal conduct scandals in the National Football League. We had... Uh, jarring video of Ray Rice spitting on and beating his wife. Then you had a other player uh, convicted and yet was still going to play until right up in game time in Carolina. Um, and finally, one of the best players in the NFL held out of a game because he abused his child. When we come back for this break, we'll talk about a large study of the negative impact of spanking of children. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist and your host for the show with all the latest mental health-related news. As I was saying before the break, this past week saw some very jolting revelations about the conduct of several prominent National Football League players, and for this next subject that I'm going to be talking about, uh, especially that of one of the biggest stars of the NFL, Adrian Peterson, running back of the Minnesota Vikings, who took a switch, uh, a tree branch, and whipped his four-year-old son with it to the point where there were marks all over his body uh, and to the point of actual bleeding. Now, you know, it's one thing to spank a child, uh, and there's such a debate about whether that's effective or not, and that's the topic we're about to get into. Uh, No one would argue that what he did was anything close to appropriate discipline, uh, regardless of whether he'd been disciplined that way by his parents when he was a child, and appropriately so, he's been indicted on child abuse charges. Uh, But nonetheless, I found this article about spanking, even though You know, what he did is far more severe than that. And I think it it is timely to bring it up because this research that I'm about to tell you about shows that spanking children, much less something more egregious, slows their cognitive development and increases their risk of eventual criminal behavior. Now, uh, a new book by... Murray Strauss, founder and co-director of the Family Research Lab, and he's a professor of sociology at University of New Hampshire. And in the book, he brings together more than four decades of research that makes 
a case against spanking, including how it slows cognitive development and increases antisocial and criminal behavior. The book is called The Primordial Violence, and it shows that the reasons parents hit those they love includes a lot more than just correcting misbehavior. It, the book provides evidence on the effect spanking has on children and what can be done to end it. And it features long-term data from more than 7,000 United States families, as well as results from a 32-nation study, and it presents the latest research on the extent to which spanking is used in different cultures and the subsequent effects of its use on children and on society. Research shows that spanking may correct misbehavior, but it also shows that spanking does not work better than other modes of correction, such as time out, explaining and depriving a child of privileges. Moreover, the research clearly shows that the gains from spanking come at a big cost. These include weakening the tie between children and parents and increasing the probability that the child will hit other children and their parents and, as adults, hit a dating or marital partner. Spanking also slows down mental development and lowers the probability of a child doing well in school. More than 100 studies have detailed these side effects of spanking, with more than 90% agreement among them. There is probably no other aspect of parenting and child behavior where the results are so consistent, according to Strauss. <clears throat> Policy and practical implications are explored in most chapters of the book, again called The Primordial Violence. Highlights include the benefits of avoiding spanking, such as the development of better interpersonal skills and higher academic achievement. The link between spanking and behavioral problems and crime. The extent to which spanking is declining and why most parents continue to spank despite the unusually high level of agreement between numerous studies that found harmful effects from spanking. Now, <clears throat> Strauss has a suggestion for the upcoming holidays. If you are looking for a gift that will increase your child's chances for a happy and healthful life, including a good job and a violence-free marriage, the evidence in this book suggests it would be promising yourself to never spank. Better yet, Tell your kids about that promise. It is likely to increase their respect and love for you, and they will also help you stick to it. More than 20 nations now prohibit spanking by parents. There is an emerging consensus that this is a fundamental human right for children. The United Nations is asking all nations to prohibit spanking. Never spanking will not only reduce the risk of delinquency and mental health problems, it also will bring to children the right to be free of physical attacks in the name of discipline, just as wives 
gained that human right a century and a quarter ago. Widely considered the most foremost, the actual uh, foremost researcher in his field, Strauss has studied spanking by large and representative samples of American parents since 1969. He has received numerous honors and awards for his research, including Life Fellow of the International Society for Research in Aggression and Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. <clears throat> he has been president of three scientific societies, including the National Council on Family Relations, has been an advisor to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. He's the author or co-author of more than 200 research articles and 15 books, including Beating the Devil Out of Them, Corporal Punishment in American Families and Its Effects on Children. Much of his research on spanking can be downloaded from this following URL. I'll try to spell it out for you. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash pubpages.unh.edu forward slash uh, tilde mas2. Now, tilde is that uh, Spanish sign that goes over an N that makes it the uh, N-Y sound. I'm not sure why that would be included in the URL, but it's um, pubpages.unh.edu slash tilde mas2 or better yet just google dr uh, strauss again his uh, full name is murray strauss with one s not two of uh, the university of new hampshire and uh, the other the two books they mentioned the one book that talks about these conclusions called the primordial violence and the uh, other book which is in its second edition is beating the devil out of them, corporal punishment in American families and its effects on children. Now, I don't usually go over someone's credentials and memberships and all that so much the way I did when uh, talking about this uh, author, but the reason I'm doing so is because whenever you talk about the negative impact of spanking, there's always going to be people who present the conservative approach. Well, I was spanked. It was good for me, and I turned out fine, and I'm glad they did it. I deserved it. Or, you know, bringing up the old saying, spare the rod, spoil the child, and so on and so forth. And there are parenting columnists whose names shall not be mentioned on the show who uh, are in favor of spanking. You know, so I'm well aware that bringing up this other point of view is going to be controversial, and that's why I'm emphasizing the person who wrote this book is not just someone who has uh, a more liberal point of view without a reason. Uh, they've done extensive research looking into this uh, to try to back up this point of view, and uh, well-published, well-respected, uh, connected with national organizations and so just trying to uh, show my audience that uh, the person reaching these conclusions has credibility well next up on psychiatry today let's talk about 
marital relations. Now, have you ever heard the expression, or you probably have heard the expression, a happy wife is a happy life, or another version of it, if mama's not happy, then no one's happy? Well, turns out that a research study found that a wife's happiness is more crucial than her husband's in keeping a marriage on track. When it comes to a happy marriage, a new study from Rutgers University finds that the more content the wife is with the long-term union, the happier the husband is with his life, no matter how he feels about their nuptials. <clears throat> it seems to come down to the fact that when a wife is satisfied with the marriage, she tends to do a lot more for her husband, which has a positive effect on his life. Men tend to be less vocal about their relationships, and their level of marital unhappiness might not be translated to their wives. Now, the study was published back in the, uh, or actually in the upcoming October issue of the Journal of Marriage and Family on Marital Quality and Happiness Among Older Adults. The study was done by two Big Ten universities. It differs from previous research because it examines the personal feelings of both spouses to determine how these marital appraisals influence the psychological well-being of older adults. Researchers analyzed data of 394 couples who were part of a national study of income, health, and disability in 2009. At least one of the spouses was 60 or older, and on average, couples were married for 39 years. Wow, that's pretty long. You don't run into couples who stay married that long too much anymore, unfortunately. In order to assess marital quality, those involved in the study were asked several questions, such as whether their spouse appreciates them, argues with them, understands their feelings, or gets on their nerves. They were also asked to keep detailed diaries about how happy they were in the previous 24 hours doing selected activities, like shopping, doing household chores, and watching television. We will look at the results when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. 
That's www.theihcc.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. Listen to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I'll guide our discussion on a fresh, news-based energy topic only on America's Web Radio. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. And again, we're talking about a study that, sh- that proves the old adage, <clears throat> happy wife is a happy life. Now, these couples who were involved in this study, again, there were almost 400 and at least one of the two uh, spouses of each couple was 60 or older, they averaged um, rating their life satisfaction high, typically five out of six points, with husbands rating their marriage slightly more positive than their wives. For both spouses, being in a better rated marriage was linked to greater life satisfaction and happiness. Still, the study also found that while wives became less happy if their spouses became ill, the husband's happiness level didn't change or reflect the same outcome if their wives got sick. An interesting finding. When I first read the article, my take on husbands rating their marriage slightly more positive than their wives, uh, I think, again, that may have to do with the general tendency that as long as there's uh, no conflicts or arguing or things like that, men tend to think things are going well, whereas uh, for women, they usually want more than that. They want there to be uh, intimacy and uh, positive reinforcement, positive feelings being expressed. But as far as the, uh, the difference in sickness there, we know that when a partner is sick, it is the wife that often does the caregiving, which can be a stressful experience. But often when a woman gets sick, it is not her husband she relies on, but her daughter. That's presuming that uh, they have daughters. The study is important, according to the researchers, because the quality of a marriage can affect the health and well-being of older individuals as they continue to age. The quality of a marriage provides a buffer against the health-depleting effects of later life stressors and helps couples manage difficult decisions regarding health and medical decision-making, which, of course, we already know is mostly done by women. 
Okay, well, there you have it. So, again, uh, mama not happy, nobody happy. Now, <clears throat> let's uh, move to a study of a very serious issue, um, the mental health impact on women of rape and attempted rape. It turns out that if you look at women who have severe mental illness, you find that 40% of them were victims of rape or attempted rape. Women with severe mental illness are up to five times more likely than the general population to be victims of sexual assault and two to three times more likely to suffer domestic violence, according to new research. The study was published in the journal Psychological Medicine and again found that 40% of women surveyed with severe mental illness had suffered rape or attempted rape in adulthood, of whom 53%, more than half, had attempted suicide as a result. In the general population, 7% of women had been victims of rape or attempted rape, of whom 3% had attempted suicide. 12% of men with severe mental illness had been seriously sexually assaulted, compared with 0.5% of the general population. Now let's, let's pause here. Why these differences? Well, like any mental illness, the vulnerability to it depends on a combination of genetic predisposition and environmental stress. So that's why not everybody who's a victim of rape or attempted rape or sexual assault becomes severely mentally ill. It's just uh, the wrong kind of stress, such as sexual assault or rape, may uh, be a factor for triggering or aggravating the underlying tendency to mental illness. The findings of this research are based on a survey of 303 randomly recruited psychiatric outpatients who had been in contact with community services for a year or more, 60% of whom had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. They were interviewed using the British Crime Survey Questionnaire. This was done uh, at the University College of London. And it, the British Crime Survey Questionnaire for Domestic and Sexual Violence, their responses were compared to those from over 22,000 respondents to the 2011-2012 National Crime Survey. The results were adjusted for a wide range of socioeconomic factors, including age, ethnicity, and marital status. The number of rape victims among women with severe mental illness is staggering. At the time of the survey, 10% had experienced sexual assault in the past year, showing that the problem, the problems continue throughout adulthood. Considering the high rate of suicide attempts among rape victims in this group, clinicians assessing people after a suicide attempt should consider asking them if they have been sexually assaulted. And indeed, a history of physical or sexual abuse or other trauma is rightfully so considered a a standard part of any psychiatric or mental health evaluation. Men and women with mental illness 
were also found to be more likely to be victims of domestic violence than the general population. Domestic violence includes emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. 69% of women and 49% of men with severe mental illness reported adulthood domestic violence. Almost three-quarters of women, almost half of men. Domestic violence from family members other than partners made up 63% of total domestic violence cases against psychiatric patients compared with 35% of the general population. So this is coming from their own families. Most domestic violence prevention policies for adults focus on partner violence. But this study shows that interventions for psychiatric patients also need to target family violence. The study shows a strong association between mental illness and sexual and domestic violence, but the direction of causality is not certain. In some cases, experiences of violence may have contributed to the onset of mental illness. However, Violence experienced in the past year would have been after diagnosis of severe mental illness, since all participating patients had been under the care of mental health services for at least a year. The results were adjusted for drug and alcohol use in the past year, but this did not significantly affect the outcomes, and causality is hard to determine. Drug and alcohol use may increase the risk of being a victim, but equally victims of violence may turn to drugs or alcohol as a maladaptive way of coping. The study highlights that patients with severe mental illness are at substantially increased risk of being a victim of domestic and sexual violence. Despite the public's concern about violence being perpetrated by patients with severe mental illness, the reality for patients is that they are at increased risk of being victims of some of the most damaging types of violence. And I think it's important again to point out much of this from family members. Uh, and I have to say that over the course of my career, when I ask a new patient, have they been uh, abused? Uh, for those with more serious mental illness, it is certainly more common that they report to me that among their own family, they were the victims of physical abuse uh, or verbal emotional abuse uh, from parents or, or even in some cases older siblings. Next up on Psychiatry Today, this past week was the anniversary of the September 11 attacks and it turns out that there are still lingering effects uh, from those who were down near the former World Trade Center that day. Post-traumatic stress disorder, respiratory illness is a signature long-term combination problem of 9-11 responders. Findings from research conducted over the past several years, as many as 60% of 9-11 World Trade Center responders continue to experience clinically significant symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and lower respiratory illness. The two conditions so often coexist in this patient community that together they can be thought of as one ailment, 
a signature illness of 9-11 responders, which increases their disability and complicates long-term medical monitoring and care. Thirteen years later, the connection between the mental and physical illnesses among responders appears stronger, and it raises important questions about the mechanisms underlying the PTSD and respiratory illness relationship. Hmm, you think it might be inflammation? I think so. Five new research projects to evaluate the extent of mental and physical illness in hundreds of responders. Ultimately, the goal is to identify a causal pathway that links the two diseases in order to identify biomarkers that can be targets for diagnosis and treatment. Over the next two years, the World Trade Center Health Program, which is at Stony Brook University, uh, will receive approximately $4 million in funding from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to carry out this research. It is alarming to see World Trade Center responders suffer from a combination of debilitating psychiatric and physical conditions affecting both their quality and duration of life. Hopefully, new data will help to treat and monitor them more effectively in the long term. And I, for one, look forward to hearing what is found about the links between PTSD and respiratory illness in World Trade Center 9-11 responders, but uh, if I had to guess what they're going to find, they're going to find that uh, the stress hormones released by exposure to trauma uh, increased inflammation in the brain and in the body and in the lungs, and then, of course, the uh, exposure to toxic substances in the air uh, also increased uh, inflammation in the lungs, and, and there's your recipe for that bad combination. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you had a wonderful, stress-free week between now and the next time we meet. And if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.